Welcome to Ask the Dean. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, and I'm the co-founder of MAPT. I'm joined every week by Rachel Grubbs, the other co-founder of MAPT, who has 20 years' experience in the pre-med and test prep world, and by Dr. Scott Wright, former executive director of TMDSAS and former director of admissions at UT Southwestern Medical School. Ask the Dean is a weekly Q&A we do live exclusively for our MAPT members, and this podcast is a recording of that session so that everyone can benefit from that knowledge. Let the knowledge flow. Ask the Dean, episode 40, live all over the interwebs. Uh, this is our public first Monday of the month session. So even if you are not a valued MAPT member, which you should be, and we can talk about that, uh, you are welcome to hang out with us today, ask some great questions, and hopefully get some awesome answers. How are you doing, Rachel Grubbs, co-founder of MAPT? I'm doing great. Thank you. Dr. Scott Wright, former ah. director of admissions at UT Southwestern, executive yeah. director, former executive director at TMDSAS or TIMSAS, as uh, yes. our, our good friend <laughs> used to like to call it, we, who shall remain nameless. Um, that, that person has learned. She says TMDSAS now. Um, how are you doing, Scott? I'm doing well. Good to, awesome. good to see everybody. Awesome. Awesome. We have lots of questions today. So I want to jump in. But before we jump in, I want to mention real quick that MAPT had a bunch of awesome updates today. One of those updates is a referral program. So if you are a user of MAPT, you can now go to your profile page and see a referral code, which you can give to friends. And when you give that referral code to your friends, it will give them a month for free, extra on top of the 14-day trial. So they will get 44 days for free. And if they do sign up for MAPT, which who wouldn't, then right. you will get a month for free as well. Awesome. So awesome. give a month, get a month. Uh, that is now live on MAPT. And to celebrate, everyone is going to get 44 days for free by using the re referral code 44 days free. Uh, that's two numbers, four, four, 44 days free in the referral code, not the coupon code, the referral code program. And um, yes. And I don't know if it is all capital letters or not. We'll, we'll uh, refer, we'll, we'll figure that out as we go. Oh yeah, it is. It's all caps. That definitely, that jives. It is live in the system. So with that cool. said, 44 days free, all caps. There you go. And uh, if you're take on advantage of it, yeah. yeah, we're on Clubhouse Live as well. So come say hi to us over there, and you can actually come on and ask questions. We'll try to bring some yeah. people to the stage. All right, yeah. let's let's rock and roll. Yeah. Well, we got a lot of pre-asked questions. If you want to start with some of those, yeah, go ahead. All right. Exciting. Got a lot going on here. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Do I really need a committee letter? Which is better, more letters from physicians who know me or the committee letter? Oh, this is a, the common question, the conundrum. Yep. yep. Got. what do you think? So my, my personal opinion is if your school does a committee letter, you need to do the committee letter. Um, it, if, if it doesn't do a committee letter, obviously you don't need to do it. But if you don't do the committee letter, it could potentially raise questions about why didn't you get a committee letter? 
could you not get one? Why not? You know, particularly if your school is a pretty widely known institution that has a committee process, then admissions committees are kind of expecting that, and uh, and ex- they they sort of know what the committee letter looks like, uh, what's in it, what to expect, etc. And and most committees uh, will allow you to get letters from physicians to add to your committee letter to add to the packet of letters that they're putting with the with the overall committee letter every school does a little bit differently Uh, but anyway so i i would say if you're eligible and that's a whole other topic if you're eligible and you you uh, your school has a committee process then i say do it i say do it you should do it um yeah i agree and and i think a lot of students um the 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 kind of more aggressive language that was used right is the you 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 have to get a committee letter if your your school offers it or you should get one there are lots of reasons not to get one mm. you don't want one is not necessarily a good reason right to get one uh, right. you you should do everything possible to get one I, if, if you've listened to me for a long time, you know, my distaste of the committee letters, but if your school offers one, you should get one unless you have good reasons that you're not getting it. Cause you're going to have to potentially answer to that. Now, the, the way that the question was asked mm-hmm. gives me some insight that the student probably doesn't understand the process well enough right now, because they said more letters from physicians who know me or the committee letter. And so remember that every medical school has their own requirements in terms of letters of recommendations. Right. So even if you don't want the committee letter, let's throw that out the window. You still need to go to each medical school that you're planning on applying to and look at what their required letters are. Yeah. And get those letters. Yep. Yep. So, and, and you know, I, the other thing I would say about that, que- about that question is that, the um, the questioner said more physician letters, uh, more letters from physicians who know me. Well, the last thing you really want is ten physicians' letters. That that's over. That's way over the top. Yeah. Uh, I would say, you know, um, uh, faculty letters are very important. Medical schools want to see letters from from faculty members who have had you in class and who can state, you know information about you as an individual in an academic setting. I've seen lots of physician letters before, and often the physician letters don't address that at all. All they say is, oh, she's so nice, and she's going to do really well with patients, and she shows up on time. And those are important things, but they don't say anything about your 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 uh, academic abilities, your intellectual skills and prowess, et cetera. So, you know, faculty letters are important. Uh, physician letters are good as well. So, you know, I think that most committees try to take those things into consideration when they're putting together their packet. And you have a role at most institutions. You have a role about where to uh, about who to who to put in that in that process for you. Yep. All right. Moving on. Hello, Rachel. <laughs> How old should a letter of recommendation be? Uh, so continuing kind of the letter of recommendation track, mm-hmm. you need to ask for new ones every year. So let's let's say a student is a freshman 
has an amazing connection with their their general chemistry professor, right? They end up TAing for that professor, but the mm-hmm. the, the student gets a letter freshman year. Is that appropriate? Or nope. the kind of the, the follow up question is: If a student needs to reapply, do I need new letters? The answer is yes. Uh, the answer <laughs> no, no to, to the first question. Yes. Yeah. No. No to the first question, which is: Don't get a letter as a freshman. Keep the relationship going. You know, visit them. You know, every now and then, email them. You know, whatever you have to do to kind of keep a good relationship going with that professor. Uh, but you don't need a letter until you're in the year of your application. Same thing for a reapplicant. If you're going to get the same letter from the same person, then at least at a bare minimum, have them update it uh, according to what you're doing now, but also just a date. I've seen, you know, I've seen it before where all they're getting is a, is a new date uh, on the letter. It's the same exact letter, but you don't want letters that are a year old, two years old, three years old, yeah. because then the question becomes, could they not get a new letter from this person? Does this person not like them anymore? You know, <laughs> what's going on with that? Yeah. yeah. So don't raise red flags that you don't have to raise. Yeah. I just came up with an analogy. Tell me, tell me how, how off the wall it is. Some people say I'm good at analogies. Other people say I'm terrible at them. So it's, it's like, it's like you're, you're, you're dating your significant other and you say, will you marry me? And they say, yes. And you say, "Great, I'll see you on the wedding day in four years." Right? You want yeah. you want to keep <laughs> keep that relationship alive. So hopefully, they still want to marry you in, in four years. <laughs> yeah, it's a terrible. That's a terrible analogy. But anyway, good, go ahead. Good. No, I, I'm, okay. I keep the tradition alive. Right. <laughs> it's innocuous. I'll give it that. <laughs> okay, so we've got a couple more pre-asked questions. So it's going to look like this girl Rachel Grubbs is asking a lot, but mm-hmm. I'm just taking the ones that were DM'd to me or post all in private groups <laughs> yeah. um so another question here posting oh wait what clinical experience is more beneficial a medical assistant or a medical scribe do admissions committees view both as clinical experience so i i'm gonna chime in here because i i don't like these questions i am fighting tooth and nail day in and day out to have you stop asking the question what is more beneficial because the question is, what do you want to do? Yep. Right? Do you think being a medical assistant will be enjoyable for you? Do you want to be hands-on with the patient? Do you want to be checking them in and asking why they're there and doing vitals and, and all of that fun stuff? Or will you not want to do that? Right? Obviously, eventually, at some point, you're going to have to be comfortable with that because that's what you do as a physician. But maybe you're not ready to get kind of hands-on, that hands-on right now and you'd maybe be more comfortable working as a medical scribe mm-hmm. and and enjoying that both are clinical experience both are great experiences which one do you want to do and, and maybe the opposite is true right for a medical scribe you have to know medical terminology you have to kind of yep. do well under pressure because you're taking in lots of information and and making sure the patient's charts are as accurate as possible and a lot of people won't like that stress and maybe a medical assistant is a better position. So at the end of the day, do what is going to be a fit for you and not necessarily what, quote unquote, looks better on an application, which is how I take the more beneficial to mean. I agree completely. I want to have my final semester grades factored into my application, but I'm applying this cycle. How should I go about applying in terms of timing for my primary if my grades aren't available? Ooh. 
Wow. So Scott, I know TMDSAS is a little mm. bit different with this, right? They yep. require those spring grades yep. to be in. Yep. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why they are pushing back the submission date this year. Yep. That's right. Um, so so if you're new news news flash, if you're if you're just learning about some changes to TMDSAS this year, historically it opened in May and you can submit it right away, but now there's going to be the the same kind of delay that AMCAS has. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that the actual dates have been announced yet, but there's there's going to be a couple week delay there. Yeah, a couple yeah. of weeks, yeah. 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 Uh Acomas has um I was gonna say the same thing that TMD SAS used to have. So to put it more clearly, officially with Acomas you can apply in early May, but you can't apply without your final semester grades. Right. Um and you know, I mean I understand why they do that. It simplifies things, but it does leave open this broad spectrum of some schools have finals in late April and that's no big deal. But you know, you Maryland College Park doesn't have the school year in until Memorial Day. And if you're at a UCAL quarter school, you don't even get your grades until mid-June. So this answer might vary depending on where the question asker goes to school. Yeah. That complicates a lot of things for Comus, especially if you're a fee assistance program recipient. Because with the FAP for Comus, if you get it, you have to submit your application within 14 days. Mm. And so there's this like game that you have to play of like, when are my grades going to come out? When am I going to be ready to submit? When should I submit my application for FAP? All trying to figure all of that out. And so I don't know why they have that 14 day limit on there. It complicates things way too much. Yeah. Well, that's liaison. Um, yeah. Or I guess, I, I don't know. Anyway, I shouldn't say that. Yeah. I don't know. <clears throat> but um, Yeah. So for this student, right? you submit your application when you get your official grades. Like, you know, for sure that that A is going to be an A and something, something wacky doesn't change. So, but you can have, but you can have everything done. You know, all you have to, all you're waiting to do is push the button to submit. So everything's done. And the minute you get those grades, you push the button. Yeah. Easy peasy. Yep. All right. For do-it-yourself postback to enhance GPA, should I take both grad and undergrad upper-level science classes? Does it matter if I mix it? Uh, so I think this depends a little bit on where the student is going to school. And I also, I mean, I my opinion is I like to see undergraduate classes, upper-level undergraduate science classes, because I think those are more readily understandable to admissions committees. They work with them all the time, day in, day out. They know what an A in a upper level, you know, immunology class means. They know what a, an A or a B in uh, an upper level micro, you know, course means. Graduate courses are a little bit different and it depends again on the institution. Uh, because the grading is different in graduate school often and uh and and you you know it's just a, a different dynamic and in the medical schools that gpa is going to go into the graduate that course is going to go into the graduate gpa as opposed to a post back undergraduate gpa which is really what you're wanting to do so i think you want to stick with upper level uh, undergraduate science classes. That's my. That's been my experience. I think it's it's a safer, more conservative route of uh, to go. Uh, so that's that's my that's my opinion. Yeah. 
yeah, I think uh, as always, there's kind of what's ideal. And right. it, it seems like historically ideal is undergraduate coursework. But if you have to do graduate coursework for one reason or another, mm-hmm. as a, in a master's program, whether that's because of financial aid or whatever that is. Right, right. That's right. That That's your story. And some schools may not like it, and that's okay. Other schools will be okay with it. Yeah. And, you know, there at, at some schools, <clears throat> the course is cross-listed as undergraduate and graduate. Okay. And so... And the graduate students are just doing different kinds of things, a project or papers or whatever. And uh, the undergrads are doing a different set of things. So if that's the case, then I, I think, you know, you're in the same class, get the credit for the, uh, for the undergraduate. So it's going to go into your, your undergrad GPA, that, that undergrad postback GPA, which is really what, where the impact's going to be. Yeah. Because it doesn't really mean a whole lot. Because if you, if you only have, let, let's say you're do, doing a do-it-yourself uh, p- uh, post-bac program, and you have only, you know, you've you, you've only got, let's say, nine hours of graduate work. You know, you, you you mixed it and you took nine hours of graduate work, but then you also did fourteen or fifteen hours of uh, of undergraduate work. Then it's not you're not getting the advantage of bulking those together because they're going into two different piles mm-hmm. in the application and the GPA calculation. So just be I, I think just be cognizant of what 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 um, silo in the GPA calculation of the of the application services those classes are going to go in and where the biggest bang for your buck is going to be. Yeah. All right. Last one from me. <laughs> How do admissions committees and med schools make sure the process fosters inclusion, equity, and diversity? That is the ultimate question. Yeah. Sometimes it doesn't and schools get yeah. in trouble. <laughs> yeah. 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 Busy looking at you. <laughs> right. Yeah, and I, you know, I think admissions committees, as a as a whole, uh, admissions committees really do want to foster a a, a diverse student body um, that 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 really addresses the the, the diversity of the population uh, of their state, you know, in particular, but you know, nationally in some ways, but certainly of their state, particularly if they're a state institution, but even, even private schools are really interested in, in a diverse population that's going to serve all the people in, in, the popula- in the population of the country. And, you know, inclusion and equity really um, are, are, are very important issues as well in terms of what is going to be the, the gestalt, if you will, of our institution. You know what are we what are we doing together as a as an institution, and what are we what are we doing that's going to make the students in our school uh, respond appropriately to the needs of the population they're serving? And so, most institutions, most admissions committees have uh, our admissions processes have uh, an, a diversity inclusion officer uh, that it's their you know that's their goal and responsibility. Uh, completely is to really, really focus the institution on these issues. And so I I think there's quite a, quite a bit of conversation around these topics of inclusion, equity, and and diversity. And, uh, and so uh, now the problem is obviously that there's some vestiges of institutional, what I would call institutional vestiges of that, that, uh, are roadblocks to that. 
for example, that we have an MCAT that disadvantages uh, URM students uh, as a whole. Uh, that that we have an MCAT that often, at least in the past, and I think even AMC will say, uh, without fail, the AMC, the MCAT people will say, oh, it's there's no difference, you know, everybody's the same and treated the same. But we recognized uh, when I was the, the director of admissions at Southwestern, that uh, that women typically performed uh, uh, differently than men. Now we would bring that up to uh, to admissions committee to the uh, WMC all the time, and they deny it out, you know, completely. But but we recognize it in a functional functional way. And so what what I'm trying to say here is that there are, there are sort of institutional vestiges across the country that really work against that. And so it really does take an effort of the admissions committee to recognize that and to, to have a process that accommodates those things and to the benefit of diversity in the class, inclusion in the curriculum, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Ryan, do we have any question askers on clubhouse? Uh, yeah, so if you're on Clubhouse right now, we're recording live on YouTube and Facebook, but we're here on Clubhouse as well, answering questions. So if you're on Clubhouse and you want to raise your hand and come on and speak to myself, Dr. Scott Wright, former director of admissions at UT Southwestern, as well as uh, uh, Dr. Dr. Rachel Grubbs, uh, Rachel Grubbs, um, our, yep, our our. Uh, MCAT experts and Absolutely. Uh, my co-founder of MAPS. You can raise your hand here in Clubhouse and come on and ask a question. So we'll, uh, we'll answer some more questions that are submitted through Facebook and YouTube. And again, if you're on Clubhouse and you want to ask a question, raise your hand. We'll bring you up. All right. So what are the indicators that will prompt you to recommend a community college postback over a four-year college and vice versa? I graduated from a non-U.S. Canadian college in a non-science major with a 2.99. So I, yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to kind of rephrase <laughs> this and, and wonder what's going on here. So put that back up, Rachel, please. Um. So said, I graduated from a non-U.S. slash Canadian. So I'm assuming that means non-Canadian college as well. If that's where they graduated from, the student has a lot of work to do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, w- I wouldn't necessarily call that a postback, although I guess technically it is, right? Just kind of in terms what, of what we normally talk about. Um, so normally, right, the, the general rule of thumb is 90 credit hours from a U.S. institution. So we just mm-hmm. want to see mm-hmm. if you've graduated overseas. At that point, you might as well get your, your degree. Yeah. Um, so yeah. The, the student is going to likely have to, going to likely have to, uh, is likely going to have to get a degree here in the States and uh, take all those prereqs because 90 credit hours is probably more than a community college can handle. There's probably not that many courses you can take. Right. I, yeah, I agree with that completely. I, I think it's a little vague in terms of what the student means in terms of uh, non-U.S. Canadian college. So I'm a little confused about that. But assuming that you're right, Ryan, uh, I agree with you that you might as well go ahead and get a, get a, a, a degree. And, and I would say if that's the case and if that's the plan, then starting off at a community college would be fine. Yep. Uh, and, uh, and taking care of a lot of the, 
uh, a, a lot of the lower level stuff and then transition over to a four-year institution uh, to do the upper level stuff. It would be, uh, would be fun. Yep. Yep. All right. Good luck, friend. Yeah. I love that. Na- I mean, I don't know if that's the person's name. Real name. Victory War. <laughs> I don't know. Probably not. I like the name Victory, though. Anyway, cool. go ahead. Yeah. The pandemic kind of messed up my shadowing plan. Welcome to the club. Uh, I thought by now that hospitals would allow shadowing by now. However, that looks to not be the case in Minnesota. What do you think admissions will view um, will view a low amount of clinical experience? How do you think they're going to view low low yeah. clinical experience? Wow, we talk about this every week, don't we? <laughs> every week, we got it. We got it. I mean, everybody's in the same boat. Uh, yeah. So you know, they you know. I would say you do what you can do. You, you look and you see what, what's available and you do e-shadowing, eshadowing.com. And uh, you try to try to get what you can. And, and then you put your app out there and see what happens because there are going to be people out there <clears throat> in a variety of positions. There are going to be some people out there who started shadowing when they were a freshman in high in uh, college. And so they've got, you know, to you know, a couple of years of shadowing or clinical experiences and stuff uh, that they've been doing all along. <clears throat> and then you got people who, for whatever reason, waited. And I'm not using that in a negative sense. Maybe they just have come to the conclusion recently that they want to do med school. And so there's a variety of, of reasons why that may be the case. But I think, uh, you know, all you can do is put, put your application out there and the admissions committees are going to do you know, what they're going to do to, to try to figure out uh, your particular commitment to medicine and your understanding of what you're getting into, which is really the main uh, parts of why uh, they want to see clinical, you know, clinical experiences. Yeah. Eshadowing.com. Eshadowing.com. We have a rheumatologist. Oh, Nice. I used to think that that meant he was a rumor. It spread rumors all the time. <laughs> this isn't a question, a, a but Dolly wrote, thank you for doing this. And I just want oh, to say, thank you, welcome. Dolly. Thanks for thank saying you, Dolly. Thanks. That's really sweet. <laughs> so we have, we have a question on Clubhouse. I'm going to bring okay. up, I'm going to bring up uh, Brianna here. Nice. Hello, Brianna. I am a non-traditional student. I'm currently a clinical research coordinator um, with about 10 years of experience in research. I graduated from undergrad with a psychology pre-med, as a psychology pre-med major um, in 2013. And I went to pursue a master's in biology and biomedical science. Graduated two years ago, and I'm currently working, as I said before, as a clinical research coordinator, just trying to figure out how I can remain competitive to apply this cycle. Um, I graduated with a 3.7 from my master's program and a 3.12 in undergrad, and just trying to make sure that um, MCAT-wise, not so good. I took it a total of three times, once in undergrad, well, twice in undergrad, actually, with the old exam, when it was mm-hmm. a three-digit score, mm-hmm. um, it was around the 500 range, and then now I, I took it again about three years ago and scored about a 15, I, I believe it was. 
I'm attempting to try it again this time around now that I have a master's under my belt with more experience in bedside manners um, and research working at the hospital and just trying to make sure that I'm competitive for this time around. <laughs> yeah. So I want to clarify the MCAT. So the, the three-digit score is the new exam. So the old two-digit score you didn't do so hot on, but the new three-digit MCAT around a 500, you said? Correct. Sorry about that. Yes, I had it switched around. Yes, yep. that's correct. That's okay. Uh, okay. I, it sounds like you're relatively competitive now. Uh, obviously, a higher MCAT score is going to help you. Um, okay. Great master's degree. What, what's your master's in? Biology and biomedical science. Yeah, that's right. Um, so you, you have a hard sciences um, master's degree or master's GPA with 3.7. That's great. An MCAT score, a better MCAT score will always help. Are you planning on retaking the MCAT? Yes, yeah, so I'm planning to take it in um, May, May 15th in May. to be exact. And awesome. I'm hoping that it'll be a lot better this time around because <laughs> it gives me anxiety a, a little bit because it's like everything's weighted on that score. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm hoping for better better results this time around. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah, I, I would say I, I agree. It depends a little bit on where you're applying, but I would, are you applying MD and DO as well? Yes, I'm considering both. Keeping yeah. my options open. Yeah, good. Good. Agreed. Yeah, You're I think doing it right. Yeah, go for it. Awesome. That feels so good to hear because I'm like, <laughs> oh my gosh, it's just been a long road and I understand that it's not a sprint and it is a marathon. Um, but I, I this is my passion. It's really about educating people through research. Mm-hmm. And I haven't gave up yet. So I, I really believe in my heart this is this is where I belong and I just want to make sure I get there and I'm doing the right things. Um, didn't really have a lot of leadership to get there. Um, so as far as like people in my family being doctors or a lot of mentors, uh, I picked up a few during my research years. And so I'm just like, okay, hopefully this is it. <laughs> good. Well, good luck to you. Yeah, yep. good luck. Yep. And Sarah, I see you with your hand up. I'll bring you up in one minute. Let's go ahead and answer another question here from from the interwebs. Okay, we've got, how do you navigate an unranked wait list versus a ranked wait list as a current applicant? What? I don't understand that question. Nope. What does navigate mean? I don't understand what that means. <laughs> what, what is unranked wait list versus ranked wait list? Is well, that, so is that some the SAS they're talking about? No, 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 no. Some, oh, some, oh. I, yes, I'm, yeah. I'm reading. I'm reading match match list, not rank list. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Or, or so ranked, just yeah. Yeah. So just to wait clarify list. for everybody, some institutions rank their wait list. So you're you're ranked one, two, three, four down to whatever, however many people they've got on the wait list. Others, it's more of a pool of, of people, and when they have an opening come up or several, they go to the yeah. pool, reevaluate everything, and decide it who they're like going to. A lot of wasted effort. Yeah. To just reevaluate every time. Well, what we used to do at Southwestern is we would have segments. So we would group people like by 10s or 20s mm-hmm. so that when we had a spot come up and we go to that first group and we and we reevaluate just that group the, of 10 or 20, which is much, much easier to do. Okay. And uh, and then and then, you know, figure out among that group of students, which one we were going to make the offer to. And it would it would be a variety of things that would go into that um into that calculation. So, but I, I, 
I don't understand this question in terms of. So just, I, I don't just really in, know what in terms of potentially, my, my assumption is, and, and I, I got confused because match day is coming up. And so I was thinking of ranked the, the lists that you submit for match day. Right. Uh, but I, I'm assuming the student is, is saying like, how do I deal with update letters and, and interacting with schools? I'm on an unranked wait list at one school and a ranked wait list at another school. Like, how do I, how do I interact with the schools? And my, my general answer is you don't interact. Like the schools will, will contact yeah. you when they'll contact you. Yeah, that's right. And you don't know, most schools are not going to tell you if their rank list is, if their wait list is ranked, they're going to take, they're not going to tell you what rank, you're yeah. on some well, will some will but yeah. most will most of them are not and I, I have a funny story related to that one year at southwestern we used to uh, rank it in quarters and i would tell them okay you're in the first quarter or you're in the second quarter of the wait list or whatever and so i had this one kid one year he called me and i was saying well you're in the you're in the uh you're in the second quarter of the wait list and literally he said how many quarters are there? <laughs> and then he immediately started dying in, inside. He was like, oh, never mind. I, I know. <laughs> as long as he caught himself. That's yeah, right. Yeah, he yeah, yeah. Himself, but I thought it was so funny. <laughs> yeah. Big points for just being nerves and not a yeah. confusion about fractions. Exactly. Nerves are okay. Nerves are normal. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. uh, oh, wow. All right. So we give what we can to this somewhat unusual question. Yeah. I mean, if they want to clarify, then that'd be fine. But otherwise, yeah. 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 Uh, you said we've got Sarah over on Clubhouse. Do you want to check yeah. in with her? Yeah, we can bring Sarah up. Hello, Sarah. Hi. Thank you, Dr. Gray, for bringing me up. Yeah, you're um, welcome. Hi. Thank you. So I have two questions, actually. Um, the first one is probably pretty standardized. A lot of people have probably asked it already, but I was wondering what uh, would the commission, uh, committee's opinion be about uh, students taking courses, um, like prereq courses, specifically after the application has been submitted. Um, so I'm a non-traditional applicant and um, I graduated undergrad in 2016. So um, I do want to uh, like apply to med school as soon as I can, which for me would be next year. Um, so I do have very limited time to prepare for um, both, you know, volunteering, uh, extracurricular to make up for that, um, and also to make up for my missing prereq courses. Um, so I would have uh, a, a few courses that I would be taking, like, after I submit my application. So I was yep. wondering, um, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah. Scott, I think for the most part, most schools don't really care as long as you have them done. The yeah, so, question yeah. is, do you have the knowledge for the MCAT if, if you have that many prereqs that are still undone? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, good, good point. Good point. Agree yeah, with you. I, I, mm -hmm. Sorry. Go, Go ahead. ahead. Oh, um, I think I would only have about uh maybe like maximum two courses left uh by that time and um they're like lab courses which is pretty like time consuming and i want yeah. to focus on you know as you said like courses that are important for mcat at this time yeah, yeah. 
Sounds good. Yeah, agreed. No issues. What's the second question? Um, second question is, uh, do you have any experience uh, working with admitting international students? Um, just any, any uh, I guess, input would be really helpful. Yeah, I mean, for the most part, international students, it's going to be the same. The application is exactly the same. There's really not much difference other than you're an international student and schools aren't always friendly to international students in terms of if they will admit you. So use the MSAR. The MSAR for this specific reason is your friend for MD schools and and scour the internet for DO schools to see what DO schools potentially are DO or are international friendly and apply. And the, the biggest thing is going to be finances because you're not eligible for federal uh, federal aid, a lot of schools are going to want a year up front, four years up front. They're, they're going to want a lot of money from you. And so mm -hmm. just making sure that you can handle that, um, handle that financial burden as well. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, yep. for sure. Thank you for the advice. Yeah, yeah you're, well. you're welcome. Yeah, I guess um, I was uh, definitely looking up the website for which schools are friendly towards international students. Um, I think there's currently less than 50 that do admit, like, are open to admitting international students. And um, just a follow-up question on that, I promise this will be the last one. Um, it, how many schools would you consider to be too many? Because as you said, like, uh, it's pretty competitive for the international student pool. And I do want to, you know, make a safe choice. So I uh, would say like 30 or 40 be too many. Scott, what do you think about that? I don't, I mean, to me, the issue of how many schools to apply to is all based on how much money you got. And, you know, if you got money and time, then apply to as many as you want to. I've had students who have applied to 40 or 50 schools and, it's very expensive to do that and very, very time consuming. Yeah. But, you know, if they don't have anything else to do, then, you know, <laughs> they spend all their time filling out secondary applications and and writing checks <laughs> and writing checks. That's exactly yeah. right. So, you know, I think well, it really depends a little bit on your pocketbook. Yeah, I, I typically say no more than 25 just because it gets it gets yeah. very expensive. I agree with very that. time consuming. Yeah. I would say and, 25 to 30. Yeah. yeah. And, and if you're doing a good job researching the schools and finding good fits, that's probably all you need to apply to. Obviously, the way that math works, the more you apply to, the better your odds. But yeah, yeah it's a lot of time and money. Yeah. yeah. Well, good luck to you. Thanks, there. Thank you. All right. All right. Let's get back to some interwebs questions. Uh, here we go. How do we use the disadvantaged part of the application without sounding like you're trying to get pity? This is the most common question I get about disadvantaged mm -hmm. essays. Yep, yep. Uh, it's got, what, weren't we talking about this the other day? We I'm did, like, yeah. It, like you have to, you have to try to elicit pity to actually, yeah, get pity. I don't think. Yeah, I don't think this is a an issue that you need to worry about. Frankly, I think you'd be honest about the situation and. Um, and, 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 you know, what, what your life has looked like or whatever, whatever makes you in your mind disadvantaged and put it out there and let the institutions, you know, look at it and see what they're going to see, what they think about it and all that. But I, I don't think that I, I frankly cannot recall ever seeing 
anything that that made me think, oh, they're just trying to pull my heartstrings to try yeah. to, you know, I, I just, I don't think that's going to happen. I agree with you too, 100%. Um, since this is such a common question, I want to offer one other angle at the answer just to see if maybe that helps resonate with the crowd. So one rule of thumb I have for any essay, especially for med admissions where um, you want to be professional, but not necessarily super, super formal is say it to a friend, right? Just talk to someone you know about it and maybe even do that in front of Google voice with the Google voice to text on so that it's Mm -hmm. transcribing as you talk. Mm-hmm. And you're still going to have to clean it up some, but that's going to help ensure it's, if it's the kind of thing you would say to someone's face, then it's probably okay to write. Um, the other thing I would say, and again, I, I believe 100% that what Scott and Ryan said about probably don't worry about it is fine. But if you're fretting anyway, look for superlatives in your words and eliminate them. I right? don't know what a superlative is. Uh, best <laughs> or worst. Mm. Or like extreme adjectives. So, um, for example, I knew someone last year whose brother was killed in a motorcycle accident, and it was horrible. And I mean, we all mourned. But every time people talked about the accident, they referred to it as tragic. And I thought like, okay, one, if you're a literature geek like me, that's not what tragic means. And I know I'm the only one who cares about that. But the other thing is, is like... Anytime someone dies in an accident, like it's understood. And I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to disparage this poor person or her friends and family who were just trying to show love. But like, if you used the word tragic 10 times in the essay, I might notice. If you used it once, it probably was tragic, you know, but just that's what I mean when I'm saying look for the superlatives. Like if you find yourself adding a lot of adjectives to facts, Maybe that's a sign that you are if maybe unintentionally trying to elicit pity. But if you're just laying out the facts, then you're just telling them why you're disadvantaged. Yeah. Agreed. Medschoolapplicationbook.com. Medschoolapplicationbook.com. My next book is coming out just in time for this application cycle. It's cutting it very close, unfortunately. Uh, but if you go to medschoolapplicationbook.com, you can sign up to be on the wait list. And I do have some examples of disadvantaged essays in there as well. All right. All right. What's next? Yeah. Let's do. If a student happens to have completed a non-SMP research-focused MS degree with a 4.0 GPA but a below-average undergrad GPA, 3.5 upward trend, is a post-bac still necessary? Nope. (laughs) Yeah, I agree. No. Easy peasy. 4.0. Good job. Yep. And that upward trend helps too. Is inpatient phlebotomy a good clinical experience? Oh, if yuck. You like it. <laughs> if no, you I'm if kidding. you hate needles, it's a really good <laughs> right. experience. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Interacting yeah. with patients. Oh yeah, absolutely. Just good be one. kind. Yeah. Be gentle. And, and be good at hurt me on accident while they're learning. <laughs> if you leave bruises, then I yeah. don't know. And be prepared yeah, to it's excellent. Excellent experience. Vasovagal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did we already have this earlier tonight? Um, no, we had no. virtual shadowing, not virtual scribe. Yeah, how do you feel about virtual scribe positions? 
Um, so this is, it's not a new thing, but a lot of students are talking about it now with COVID mm -hmm. in terms of scribing positions. Um, so I feel, and this is just me personally, I feel that virtual scribe positions are going to be less liked by admissions committees because in-person scribe positions are still a thing. Yeah. Now, uh, it, there are obviously risks if if you have health issues if you have if you live with loved ones who have health issues then you you obviously don't want to expose them um but virtual scribe positions are an alternative potentially but i i have a feeling medical schools aren't going to like it as much yeah i i agree with that i think i think it depends on timing uh right now Sometimes virtual is about all you can do. It depends a little bit on where you're located in the hospital or the clinic or whatever. But uh, you know, if if that's all you can can do, then then you do it, and you're going to learn a lot. And but uh, in years to come, as the pandemic eases, then I agree that I think the admissions committees are not going to be as favorable toward virtual anything virtual shadowing virtual whatever as they are real in-person meaningful contact yep all right let's keep rocking would virtual shadowing count as shadowing <laughs> yes it does <laughs> um, it, not every school will like it some schools will do it uh we've i i've been talking to a lot of schools some schools like it some schools don't but put it on your application. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Now, seeing as we're talking to the FBI, I, I won't swear to that, but. <laughs> uh, yeah, not, not conference, just listed under shadowing. That's fine. Right, right. Most of the experience I've gotten is clinical, and it seems difficult to ask doctors to take time out of their busy day to sit down to talk to me for shadowing. How would you ask that question? So shadowing isn't. Hey, doctor, sit down and talk to me. That is more job interviewing. Mm -hmm. um, I think it has a different, more technical term. Um, shadowing is they're doing their job, and not taking time out of their busy day. They're actually working and you're just following along, yeah. trying to keep up like a little puppy. <laughs> yep. Like a shadow, hence shadowing. Like a shadow. Exactly. Yep. So you just got to ask. And and yeah, some physicians don't like it, but I, I this question is is all fear and uncertainty and yep. and just just ask the questions physicians yeah. know the drill they know yeah. the process yeah and i would you know i i recommend sometimes just take just say to the doctor can i buy you a cup of coffee and sit down with you for 10 minutes ask you a few questions and then in the midst of asking you a few questions you say i would really love to follow you around for a day is that at all possible i will you know, you won't even know I'm there. I'll just be, be a little shadow in the corner. And, uh, but yeah. Yep. My undergraduate GPA was 2.9, science GPA 2.8. Since then, I've taken 31 quarter credits. I had to do it yourself post back, maintaining a 3.96. Awesome. I'm thinking of taking more classes. Would you recommend more classes? Rachel, do you know what the conversion is from quarter credits to semester credits? <sighs> I was just thinking about that. I think it's uh, two thirds. Yeah, I think that's right. Two thirds. It must be. Yeah. 
Because three 10-week quarters and two 15-week semesters. So you're basically 20 semester hours. Divide quarter credits by 1.5 is Mm -hmm. the first thing that pops up here. So it's basically 20 20, 20 semester hours. The equivalent of 20 semester hours, which I don't think is enough. Yeah. Yeah. I think you need more than that. I I, I think more like double that to 40 and you'd be in the right neighborhood. Okay. So this person said, I'm thinking of taking more classes. You are right. Keep going. Good job. Keep going. And yep. great, great job. Great turn. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You're doing, That's, you're doing yeah. it right way. No, the FBI is back. Oh, <laughs> no. yeah. You again. And talking about it and talking about dishonesty too. Holy I mean, aren't you God. the one to decide? <laughs> <laughs> and for everyone listening to this and not watching FBI is their username. Yeah. Does an academic dishonesty immediately bar any admissions to Texas medical schools? No. No, not at all. I mean, I think it depends on the situation. It often depends on when it occurred. It it occurs a freshman, which is very common. Freshmen are still trying to figure it out. And, you know, it's not uncommon to get plagiarism, you know, a a plagiarism thing in in a something like a a, a physics lab report or something like that. And and uh, so I, I think it depends on when it happened. It depends on what happened and it depends on how you talk about it. So, but the answer to the question is no, it does not immediately bar you from anything. Yeah. I mean, we've had, you know, a lot of students that have had academic dishonesty things. We've also had students who've had criminal background things that have happened. The same thing occurs with that. When, when and where and, and what was it? And are you taking responsibility for it and, you know, owning it and that kind of stuff? I was yep. just going to chime in as a quick addendum to this. So we mentioned at the top that we're doing a special offer. So there's a referral code that tells you what the offer is. The referral referral code is four four days free, forty four days free. Um, if you go to use that in our application section of Mapped, we have all the essays and written answers questions for all three application services. So for someone who's got some academic dishonesty on their record, you can go look at those prompts and start thinking about what those essays are going to be for you that, I mean, personal statement's still the biggie, but that that's something you don't want to wait until the app opens. You could start working on it now. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So what's next? No shadowing, but the last five years of clinical experience, do I still need to shadow? All right, so let's let's frame some fake context around here. So, Stefani here is a nurse, right? Let's say she's a nurse. She's she's working last five years as a nurse, but doesn't have any shadowing. Does she still need a shadow? No. <laughs> so, see, I I have. A I disagree. Oh, really? I completely disagree. Yeah. Really? So, so my my response to this is always, you know what that physician is doing at the bedside. Yep. But, but once they leave the bedside with you, you have no idea what the rest of their day is like. like well, the, you're you're assuming a lot there. Grant. Well, of course, it's a you huge don't know assumption. you don't know what the shadowing experience, the uh, clinical experiences have been. Of course. Of course. So, so d- I think it depends on what what kind of clinical experiences, how much, to what extent, etc. That you know that they have. Do you still need to shadow? Depends on that. So I'll, I'll, I'll go, I'll, I'll go that far. Yeah. My Uh, my answer is yes. Some mine is depends. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think at least a little because it avoids the question. Right. So I'm, I mean, I'm voting yes, even if it's only like eight or 16 hours. And, you know, to me, Stefani, the reason is like, 
you have all this amazing clinical experience. I'm going to assume that you're caring and wonderful with patients and a skilled technician. But have you watched a doctor fight on the phone with insurance for two hours? Have you seen how much of the day is annoying paperwork? Maybe you have. But if you have even a tiny bit of shadow in your record, then we know for sure that you don't. Well, I, that's okay. I'm going to disagree with that. And the reason I'm going to disagree with that is that shadowing not, doesn't always include that part of what physicians do. Correct. The shadowing, often the, the shadowing is you're following me around in the clinic, your patient contact and everything. Now I'm going to go do my thing. You're <laughs> free to go. <laughs> you're free to go. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, I think we're making some assumptions there that we can't necessarily make. And it depends a lot on the situation, the doctor, how how much is going on. So there's there's you know. So I, again, I'm going to be a real advocate for it depends. Yep. <laughs> we have one more hand raise here on Clubhouse. Um, if we want to bring that student up, yeah, go sure. ahead. Sure. All right, we'll bring up Daniela, and she's she's new to Clubhouse. She's got a little party hat still. So welcome to Clubhouse and. Welcome to the Welcome. stage, Daniela. Hi. Hello. Can you guys hear me? Yep. Yep. Yeah, I was actually downloading the app. Uh, <laughs> here and now I had to ask a question. So I was like, I'm a Canadian student. Um, so I don't know how <laughs> that's going to come up. But um, so I'm doing a master's degree in neuroscience, but it's more research based. Um, so I only took, it's only five courses, but I do have a 3.8, um, GPA. Um, and I have my undergrad is at 3.2. Mm. So I don't know. Um, yeah. And I'm planning to take the MCAT this, um, summer. I, mm. I, I know that it's, uh, for us is a little different. So mm. yeah, that's, that's the question. Are you planning on applying only to Canadian schools? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm planning, planning to apply for both. Canadian and U.S. schools? Yeah. Okay. And D.O. schools. And okay. Yeah, and I have learned, it's just very hard to find advice in Canadian schools. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Canadian schools, it's super competitive, right? Because there's not a lot of schools. And there's lots of students who want to go to medical school in, in Canada. And the, the stats are ridiculously high, compared, even compared to U.S. schools. Um, and it's, it's just, it's hard. Where, where do you think is your biggest, uh, your, your biggest weakness in your application? My GPA. But your master's GPA you said was good. What's your yeah, master's only, GPA? Uh, five course. Only five courses. Um, yeah. Yeah. Three point, yeah. Yeah. Because it's, it's research based. Yeah. 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 And there are, um, there in, in Canada, like post back isn't necessarily a thing, right? So a lot of students in Canada, as far as I know, mm -hmm. go back and just get a second degree, and that's that's their post back. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> or come to the U.S. and do a post back in the U.S. Yeah, which yeah, is also possible. Yeah, yeah. And my concern, my concern is a little bit with the uh, with the length of the graduate program, and uh, it, it seems to me like the particularly U.S. schools are going to look most notably at that undergraduate GPA, which is low. So I, I would say, I, I would say pulling in some, 
<clears throat> a post-bac program, you might look at, at some post-bac programs around the country in the U.S. and see if, if there's not one that might fit your needs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are you willing to come to the U.S. for a post-bac program? Yeah. Well, my dad lives in the U.S. So okay. He's in Arizona. Oh, there you go. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so it's just more more work, unfortunately, for you grade wise. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Get that done. Yeah. Thank Thank you. Yeah, you're, you're welcome. welcome. You're welcome. All, All right. right. Oh, go ahead, Ryan. Go ahead. I was going to say it's two minutes till seven, but we might be able to run a little bit past the hour. Um, so we'll take one or two more. Um, or ten. Or ten. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Yeah, Ryan or Scott, you and I had an appointment now, but it, it's not happening anymore. So we have okay, cool. time. Excellent. Oh, here's here's one that I like. Dr. Gray, can you talk about the teals of medical schools again? And now there's no such thing. I know you've already talked about this, but this year is abnormally competitive and we need to take what we can get. Oh, it's funny. I was actually going to record. I, I talked about this last week for Application Academy, my uh, my group coaching, and I was going to record a podcast about tiers of medical schools. So in my mind, tiers of medical schools is made up pre-med BS. Yep. Every medical school in the U.S., besides Florida State. <laughs> Just kidding, Florida State. I'm so ashamed. Uh, every medical school in the country, in this country, will prepare you to be an amazing physician. You yep. are the one that puts in the hard work. Now, yeah. with that said, there are obviously great prestigious universities who have really big names and have been there for a long time. Harvard, WashU, NYU, Columbia, right? Those are great schools. We all know about them. Going to Harvard will not make you a better physician than going to your state school. Mm-hmm. That is where I talk about tiers of medical schools. And, and in, my, in my application academy workshop last week, I actually broke down the methodology for U.S. News and World Reports and, and talked about how the ranking system where a lot of school, where a lot of these students will will create the tiers and go, okay, there's 122 schools in our, in our ranking list or whatever it is. Let's cut them up in thirds and go, oh, here's top tier, here's mid tier, here's low tier. The, that whole U.S. News and World Reports ranking is complete objective, not objective, complete and utter subjective baloney. Yeah. Um, it's all a popularity yep. contest yep. based on uh, based on who your friends are. And yep. there's really no good data, no objective data to support any of it, system. right? Yeah, um, that's right. Uh, yeah, it's all BS. That's all you need to know. <clears throat> the other thing I would like to point out about this, it, it, just a little bit about this question, is the 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 questioner says, "I know we've already talked about this, but this year is abnormally competitive." I don't agree with that. No, number I one, I it, it, you number one, it, this year you, we don't know what this year is going to bring, but the. To say it's abnormally competitive is is a misnomer. I, I don't I don't agree with that. I think it's always competitive. The applications are getting getting greater, and they will continue to get greater. And so it's going to be more competitive because of that, because of the numbers uh, of how many how many applicants there are. But I don't think this year is going to be abnormally competitive. I think the the competitiveness is growing, and it's going to continue to grow. Yep. yep. Well, yeah, so- and I think. Uh, there was a lot of talk in the summer about more applications than usual, mm-hmm. but 
the last I saw, fewer of them had been verified. So starting an application and actually applying, not the same statistic. Yep. But yeah, that goes up a little bit every year. So let me. I'm going to share my screen for for two seconds, um, just to to show this. I always give. Here's another analogy for you. I, I always give the analogy of professional uh, a professional football team, <clears throat> right? We know in it, for those of you who like college sports. Uh, uh, obviously, I'm a big Florida football fan. We know that like there there are really good programs in this country, right? University of Florida is good. I'll, I'll give University of Texas is pretty good too. There for Scott. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so we we know they're 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 quote unquote top tier Isaac football Texas programs, and when you look at professional teams and you look at the roster of a professional team, the the players on those teams are not made up of players only from those top ranked programs. Right, like they're made up from Division One, Division Two, II, Division Three. Yeah, it's the individual players that make the team correct and so the the thing i wanted to share here is um a link or not a link it's it's university of florida's anesthesia residence and i was looking at this randomly the other day just to show you right university of florida sorry rachel it's, it's university of florida just happened to be looking at this one the other day but you can see where their residents come from right three of them here randomly university of missouri kansas city this is awesome the twins here yeah um uh this is like that l samuel jackson and d samuel jackson like the l and d uh variations mm -hmm. of that uh, right but missouri kansas city lake erie college right do nova do uh, University of Florida, you'll, you'll see it's very common for a lot of programs to take from their own school, just mm -hmm. from exposure and networking. South Carolina, Wright State, we have some international students here, Oakland, Indiana, USIS, right, another international. And so you can see just huge variations. Yeah, where they're coming from. Yeah, where they're coming from. Yep. So yep. it does not matter yeah. where you are going. And yeah, yeah some nice. of the more prestigious, again, top tier if you want to call it that, which is baloney residency programs, there are some snooty people out there who only want students from Columbia or Harvard or NYU. And you, you can find anecdotal, anecdotal evidence that some programs really do want those students from, from the Ivy League schools. But that yeah. doesn't mean anything either. Yeah, I agree. I totally agree. Robert doesn't like my analogies. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Really? Although that comment is like from 50 minutes ago when you, I think <laughs> you made the one about one. spouses or whatever. <laughs> yeah. uh, That's all right. Um, yeah, I I wanted to post that that question we had because there's a lot of chatter going on in the YouTube. Comments yeah, there is. Yeah. About yeah. safeties and matches and reaches, which I I know, but we we did some debating before on an earlier question on this one. We are all three 100 percent aligned. It's bull. Baloney. Yeah. Um, yeah. No such thing as safety. <laughs> There's no, no such, such safety as yeah. Thing of safety in that is hard to get into. Yeah. I, I also like it how so many of these people on YouTube are answering each other's questions. Yep. Mm -hmm. I don't know how they know what the answers are, but you know, anyway. YouTube people are very opinionated. <laughs> yeah. Apparently, I'm scared to look at my comments on my videos. Apparently. <laughs> Like there's one that says, oh, I answered your question. Don't apply this year. Wait two years. I mean, <laughs> where, where the hell is that coming from? And how do you know that? Yeah. Anyway. 
<laughs> Sorry, I just had to bang on whoever that was. <clears throat> yeah. Right, there's more in here. Oh, One more, two more. Yeah. How far back do we date our activities? Is high school too far back? Yes. Post high school. Post high school. So that means your summer after your graduation from high school is applicable. Uh, senior year of high school is not applicable unless the activity spanned across them. Yep. And then you could, you know, include it, obviously. But, uh, yeah. Yep. Easy one. Let's do some rapid fire ones. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm doing a capstone project for my degree. Does that count as research experience? If not, how should I classify it on the application? This is always a, a question that comes up in terms mm. of kind of school-required research. Is that mm. research that I can put on my application? I, my opinion is no. Um, I think a capstone project is a part of a class that you're doing. It's different than if you're doing independent research under a PI in a lab or, or whatever. This is, it's, that would be like writing a paper in your class and then saying, oh, I, I have a paper. I'm a published <laughs> author. <laughs> yeah, that's not the same thing. Yeah, it's, it's always a, a tricky one. Yeah. What is the minimum number of clinical experience needed? One someone... million hours. <laughs> How can someone? <laughs> you were just waiting for that one. <laughs> How can someone volunteer in a medical facility as clinical experience and not just volunteer experience? All right. So here's where there's just lots of confusion around what these terms mean. Yep. Clinical experience is working with patients hands-on, interacting, not necessarily doing the needle sticks, but just interacting with those patients. It can be paid or volunteer. So you can go to a, a hospital and volunteer and interact with patients and bring them water and bring them blankets and talk to them and see how they're doing and um, all that stuff. That's clinical experience. Yep. And Definitely. so uh, that so so that aside, what's the minimum number of experience needed? On AMCAS, you get 15 spots. On ACOMIS and TMDSAS, it's unlimited. Uh, is is there any sort of technical limit on TMDSAS that you know of, Scott? I don't like if someone so. wants to put 9,999, they can if they well, want to do? Of course, that's not going to happen, Ryan. <laughs> no, I'm saying, is there a technical <laughs> limit? That'd be interesting. To me. I don't know the answer to that question. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, I typically always recommend to have at least 10 experiences. Uh Less than that, it looks a little weird, but don't don't just add fluff to add fluff. Yep. Yeah, agreed. Is 30 or 40, 30s, 40s too old to apply to MDDO PhD programs? Nope. Nope. Rapid fire. <laughs> Easy yeah. peasy. Yeah. What are the chances that maps will be Canadian friendly in the near future? Um, define Canadian friendly. So yeah, right now right. you can track your classes. We have lots of Canadian undergraduate schools in the system um, that you can you can add in there. Uh, most Canadian schools are individual applications, so there aren't application services other than OMSAS, the Ontario Medical School Application Service. Uh, they they do have an application service. Uh, we could potentially add that as a um as an application feature in the future, Rachel, if someone is applying to, to Canadian schools. Yeah. Yeah. Let us know. It's funny. You want. I was going to say, what's your definition of near future? 
Um, <laughs> adding more stuff for Canada is on our to-do list. Is it going to happen before you apply this summer? Eh, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's see. Here's a quick one. Doing a master's degree in neuroscience with more focus on research thesis, which only includes four courses. Does this count as a postback to overcome a 3.2 undergraduate GPA? Oh, I think this is our friend Daniela who called in. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. I would say no, it doesn't. There we go. Yeah. I know that this might depend on the medical schools, but in your opinion, do letters of recommendations from computer science and biomedical informatics professors count as science LORs? I would say no. You think so? I would. Well, computer science definitely no. So computer um, science. So so my answer is always: Is it classified as science in AMCAS? Then it's a science letter, right? Well, I think. I mean, my personal opinion is: If you try to pass off a computer science professor as a as a hard science letter, which is what they're wanting, then yeah. you're gonna get laughed out of the room. Yeah. But what if it's a uh, like a calculus professor? Math is is considered a BCPM, and I don't think they're talking about math either. Yeah, mm -mm. I think they're talking about science. When they say a science professor, they're talking about science. When science means biology, chemistry, physics, neuroscience, it means hard science. It doesn't mean yeah. computer science, and it doesn't mean social science. I mean, if you're thinking that the word science is in it, so let's go for it, then no. <laughs> But that's it is a little confusing, though, because science GPA includes yeah. high-level statistics, which biomedical informatics would be. I, I, I agree with that. But we're, not, we're talking about letters of recommendation here. Yeah, we're yeah. not talking about GPA calculation. This, they're two different things, and you can't yeah, necessarily yeah, – I'm just saying I think yeah, the overlap yeah. of terms is a little confusing. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I agree it could be a little bit more you know, clear, but yeah. yeah. I disagree with that one, but that's okay. okay. You're okay to be wrong. I, 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 I've never understood the the whole two science, one non-science. Like, what the heck is a physics professor going to know more than another professor? Like, they're both professors. They both help me learn. I get to interact with both. They both get to understand who I am. So I, I've never really understood the the difference of why one is potentially more important than another. Not, yeah. I don't know. All right. Quick one. I plan on taking chemistry two over the summer due to some circumstances. I wanted to know how do medical schools view taking prereqs over the summer? This is another huge pre-med myth that just mm -hmm. is perpetuated day in and day out on student doctor network and on Reddit that medical schools don't like it. If you take prereqs during the summer, that's <laughs> eh, bullshit. Yeah. Take, no. <laughs> take your class, do yeah. well, and yeah. nobody will care. Yeah, I agree. What I will say is I sometimes have students say to me when they're prepping for the MCAT, I took it in the summer and it was super compressed. And even though I got an A, I don't remember anything from it. To which I say it is on all of you, no matter the format of any class you take, to be thinking about if you're going to need that information again in a later course or on the MCAT. But that does, that's not a reason not to take it in the summer. Yep. Just keep it in mind. All right, one more. Ah, uh, yeah, I lost track again, though. Darn it, where was I? Someone wow, there's a couple of people on this. Uh, YouTube. I'll just mention this again. There's a couple of people on this YouTube that keep commenting and stuff. We 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 should just hire them. They apparently know everything. <laughs> Scott, you ignore them. 
I mean, holy they're, cow. They're going to okay boomer you in two seconds. Totally. I, mean, okay. I, I totally, I will totally own that if they will own that they're a know-it-all. <laughs> Let's just own our own selves. Jeez. Let's pay him. <laughs> like they said, Dr. Scott, I'm just trying to help. <laughs> Yeah, whatever. Oh, <laughs> uh, too funny. Yeah. Here we go. All right. Does a personal statement need to include clinical experience stories to be considered good? Oh, I mean, I wrote a whole book about it. So, right. so in my mind, the whole point of why you want to, be, uh, the whole point of the personal statement is why do you want to be a physician? Mm-hmm. And to support that argument, which I, I'm always careful with that word because the personal statement is, an argu- is not an argumentative paper, to support that kind of process that you've determined that you want to be a physician, you show clinical experiences that highlight your desires around why you want to be a physician. So yes, I think you need clinical experiences to, to have a good personal statement. Does it have mm-hmm. to be all clinical experiences? No. Yeah. Agreed. You are the expert. <laughs> Facebook user says Scott is never a boomer. He is the best. <laughs> <laughs> Woo-hoo! I love- Ooh, you know, that rubs me the wrong way because boomers can be okay people despite yeah. the recent disparagement. Yes, yeah, absolutely. but when you say okay boomer, I mean. No, that yeah, is- that's not any good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, That's different. I got, I got called a boomer the other day. <laughs> it was hilarious. Really? Was cracking up, yeah. <laughs> you aren't even technically Gen X. You're technically elder millennial. I am. Yes, I wow. am. Wow. I'm barely a boomer. I'm I'm just right on the edge. So. Yeah. I'm what they call a zennial because I'm on the edge of Gen X and millennial. Um, yeah. Good talk. Everyone's bored. Uh, Let's let's wrap this up. Thank you, everyone, for coming. We love these public Mondays. Absolutely. First Monday of every month, we're doing them now. So mark it on your calendar. If you like this, then come join MAPS, and you get 44 days for free using the referral code 44 days free mapped is a technology platform that will help you track and navigate your process to medical school. So everything from tracking all of your courses and grades at every school that you've been to, we have some students, Rachel, what seven, they've been to seven different undergraduate institutions and they enter them all into mapped and they get a pretty little chart that shows what their GPA is going to look like to medical schools. You can track the MCAT, start building a school list. We added some new features now to to add uh, add kind of reflection and notes on uh, all of the courses and MCATs and uh, all the schools that you add on your school list, why you added them, et cetera. So go check it out. If you're at an undergraduate institution and you have a pre-med advisor, you can add your advisor to your MAPT account so they can get read-only access to everything that you put in there. So go check that out. Yeah, yep. absolutely. And Mapped. once you're a MAPT member, you can come to these Ask the Deans every, every single week. We do these public week. ones once a month, but if you're a MAPT member, you get them weekly. Yay. That is it. All right, yeah. everyone. Well, this is a nice. Thank you for all the time, patience, and laughs. <laughs> oh. And thank you, Clubhouse. I'm going to end yeah. the room now. Everyone awesome. have a good night. Awesome. All right, take care. Bye, everyone. everybody. 
This is Dr. Gray again, closing out. I hope you learned something from our session today. If you haven't yet checked out Mapped, I invite you to try it for free for two weeks by going to mapped.com slash podcast. Track and navigate your journey to medical school using the only tool like it for pre-meds. We'll see you next week here on Ask the Dean.